and um, my wife and children. I love and appreciate and honor them in Jesus' name. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession far. Everybody say far. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Look at your neighbor and tell him God's praying for you. With groanings which cannot be uttered, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession, everybody say that word, for who? All right, everybody on the right side got it, the middle and the left did not get it. Who is he praying for? Well, the far left is still the far left. Who's he praying for? The saints. And who's praying? All right. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that all things work together for good that uh, to them that love God, to them who are called, the called according to his purpose. Now we're going to read it again in the Amplified Classic Edition. For this, for in this hope we are saved. But hope which is seen is not hope. For how can one hope for what he already sees? But if we hope for what is still unseen by us, we wait for it with patience and Composure. That's a significant statement. Don't be throwing a fit just because I hadn't got what I was waiting for. I can't be getting mad at Jesus every time something don't work the way I want it to. I can't get mad and skip church just because he hadn't done it yet. We wait for it with patience and composure. So too the Holy Spirit comes to our aid and bears us up in our weakness. For we do not know what prayer to offer nor how to offer it worthily as we ought. But the Spirit himself goes to meet our supplication and pleads in our behalf with unspeakable yearnings and groanings too deep for utterance. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is in the mind of the Spirit <clears throat> because the Spirit intercedes and pleads before God in behalf of the saints according to and in harmony with God's will. We are assured and know that God being a partner in their labor, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good to and for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. Now, we will read it yet again in the Passion Translation because I like it. And it breaks it down in a more modern-day English um, than even the Amplified Classic does. 
For this is the hope of our salvation. But hope means that we must trust and wait for what is still unseen. For why would we need to hope for something we already have? So, because our hope is set on what is yet to be seen, we patiently keep on waiting for its fulfillment. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us in our human frailty to empower us in our weakness. For example, at times we don't even know how to pray or know the best things to ask for. But the Holy Spirit rises up within us to super intercede on our behalf, pleading to God with emotional sighs too deep for words. God, the searcher of the heart, knows fully our longings, yet he also understands the desires of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit passionately pleads before God for us, his holy ones, in perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. Now, he just spent a few spaces of time there explaining what the Spirit's doing and who he's doing it for. He's interceding, he's interceding on our behalf, and now he tells why. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good, that we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. Now, for a long time in my life, I heard um, about the fact that the Lord was making intercession um, through us and then come to find out he was not necessarily uh, making intercession through us. Uh, he was praying for us. And the reason he was praying for us that we would be, was that we would be convinced of some things, and that is the will of God, to sum it up, and there's so many subcategories of it, but he was praying that we would be convinced of his will to us, through us, and for us in his kingdom in the last days of the church or in whatever day you found yourself alive. Now, I don't know exactly when the Lord's coming. Uh, I know there are those who think they have figured it out and um, have even publicly stated that they believe the Lord is coming. I believe it's in September. The month they believe he's coming is September. And I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, some of the ones that I've heard talking about it believe that that is, I think it's 23 or 24, somewhere in the next couple of years. Now, I, I find that hard for me to be able to wrap my arms around and embrace it because... I've just been thinking about if it was me that had gone to Calvary and taken that brutal beating like he took for us, I would not send out a memo and let everybody know exactly when I was coming so they could live like they wanted to and not love me until the last minute and then want to run up in here and act like they're sanctified and go and go to heaven. I'd be looking for a people that had demonstrated their love for me over whatever length of time, irregardless of whether they knew exactly when I was coming. Now, I'm not going to go out on a huge platform here and decry what some have said, their belief on that is, 
uh, because I will further tell you that I'm not the most uh, educated person when it comes to end-time prophecy. Uh, and the Lord has not chosen to reveal to me everything that apparently others feel like he's revealed to them. And that's fine because everybody don't have the exact same revelations. If we did, we wouldn't need teachers and preachers and people uh, talking to us and iron sharpening iron. We, we sat down at the coffee table with someone and uh, begin to talk about what we've seen in the Word. And uh, that person you're talking to, uh, just in a casual conversation, may say something that says to you, this is the missing link. This, and now all of a sudden you've got a revelation you didn't have when coffee started. So I, I do believe that there are going to be people that certainly have revelations that I don't have. God hadn't told me everything, and I'm not God. So I, I understand that. But knowing what I know about him and about Scripture, it does strike me as a little bit, um, a little bit off the beaten path that he would tell us, especially in light of the fact there are Scriptures that say no man knows the day nor the hour. But what I do know scripturally is that never did the Lord enter any place in a significant manner where he was going to do a significant thing without there being some kind of an announcement or pronouncement that he was coming. Uh, even to the Old Testament prophets who began to prophesy of his coming, the angel that overshadows Mary, Isaiah, and all he had to say and others uh, that, that wrote and spoke about the, the, come, the coming and the birth of the Messiah. Uh, John the Baptist running around out in the wilderness with locusts and honey and uh, doing all of the stuff he's saying. And now here's somebody coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to even latch. Uh, and then, of course, he's the one that baptizes the Messiah. And then uh, along the way there, we, we find out that maybe, maybe he wasn't as convinced about some things as probably we thought he would have been because he sends messengers and asks the question, need you to go and find him. Uh, I'm locked up in this little penitentiary, so I can't go, but I need you, my disciples, to go and ask a question. Are you really him, or should we be looking for another? My point is it doesn't matter how long any of us have been in church or how short a period of time we've been in church. Everybody that's sitting in this room and in any other church in the world needs to make sure that we let God help us come to some revelations about what it is we actually believe and not just believe it because somebody told me I believe this, believe it because I saw it in the word of God all for myself. Now, I know he chose by the foolishness of preaching to save the lost, and we've got to have a preacher. I get all of that. But if the only revelation I'm expecting to go to heaven on is what I get from the man of God in my life, I'm probably going to be lost. If you go, there will come a point if you only eat natural food one or two times a week, and that's what somebody else fixed, and you don't like it, and you're only going to eat a little bit of it, and then we'll see you on Wednesday and try again, there may come a point where you start losing weight and you start getting malnourished and your body starts to shut down. It could even bring about perhaps a, a very detrimental end. But if I'm eating at home too, go ask your doctor if the only time you should eat a meal is on Monday morning at the restaurant. 
they're going to look at you and be thinking, did you really just ask me that? What are you talking about? No, you've got to eat on a daily basis. There's some things you need to put in your body on a regular basis. I realize that fasting kind of rules that out. You've got to fast a little bit here and there, but uh, live right. Maybe you won't have to do a 21-day fast. I don't know. I'm going to tell you what I believe about fasting. Start it on a full stomach. <clears throat> I always hated them fast that you started early in the morning and you had not had time to get up and eat yet. I'm like, let's do this at 2 p.m. I got two meals ahead of me and then we'll fire it up about 2 o'clock. But I don't know when he's coming. And I don't know anybody that really can prophetically say, biblically, accurately, this is the day, this is the week, this is the month, this is the year. But I do know that just as he has always done, he has allowed people to begin to preach and talk to us on a regular basis and remind us that he's coming and remind us that the world we're living in is not getting better, it's actually getting worse. And remind us that the church is going to be tried and we're going to go through some stuff. Now, if you're pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, that's a big question, and I suggest that you might want to look into that. But <clears throat> don't, don't let my revelation be yours, but I'm going early. Uh, I, I believe the Lord's going to take his bride out of here before he allows the enemy to do what he would do to us. I wouldn't leave my bride behind for it. But by the same token, if we think that we're going to get out of here without persecution, that's a very naive thought. The scripture says that we'll be hated for his name's sake. And we're not hated yet. Everybody don't hate the church yet. But the day will come when the enemy is not going to be able to abide righteous preaching and teaching out of the word of God. Not opinions, not preferences, not ideas, not philosophy, but the scripture and nothing but the scripture. The enemy doesn't mind us preaching opinions. In fact, he's, he's looking forward to us preaching our opinions about the word of God. And sadly enough, it has come to my attention, just from my observations alone, that we have, we have built churches and individually we have built relationships with God that are based on opinions about Scripture and not revelation about Scripture. Now, that's not semantics and that's not hermeneutics and homiletics. That's, that's truth. We have opinions about the Word of God. And then when somebody doesn't preach the Word according to my opinion about the Word, I get mad at them and I may not agree with it and exercise in my life what was just preached to me. Well, he's entitled to his opinion. No, we're not. I don't have a right to an opinion about anything in that Bible. Not one word, not one verse in that Bible do I have a right to have an opinion about. And just a heads up, neither do you. Nobody living in this world has a right to an opinion about the Word of God. But we all have a responsibility to make a decision about the Word of God. Am I going to obey it or disobey it? I'm not even going to say obey it or not. It's obey it or disobey it. Those are the two choices. He said you love one, you can't serve two masters at one time. You love one and hate the other or you hate the one and love the other. There is no in between. 
<clears throat> and so with him, there's no neutral zone. There is no gray area with God. I know some would say, well, that sounds like some authoritarian God. No, that sounds like somebody who robed themselves in flesh and paid a price for my sin so I don't have to be lost. And he then earned the right to make the decisions about how he wants his bride to live. So I've got to make a decision, not just once in my life, but every single day of my life, and sometimes multiple times during that day. Am I going to give myself over to what my flesh wants to do, or am I going to choose to serve God and his will so his will can be done in me and then through me in the world? Now, we've got people that vacillate back and forth between, and the scripture asks the question, how long wilt thou halt between two opinions? Am I going to serve God or not serve God? If I'm going to call myself a Christian, then I have no choice but to live by the teachings of Christ, period, end of story. If I'm going to do that, it's a whole lot easier to be a Christian when you really know what a Christian believes, and then you've got a revelation about that and a conviction about that. But we've got churches full of people that have opinions about the Scripture but not a revelation about it. And that's why it's easy for them to hop, skip, and jump all over the county all the time. If you don't preach it the way I like it, I'll go somewhere else. Somebody else will preach it the way I like it and make me happy, and I'll be thoroughly satisfied with what they preached. Well, if Brother Williams is preaching something from this pulpit, either one of them, and you don't like it, and all I've got is a revela uh, an opinion about Scripture, my opinion will allow me and afford me the luxury of leaving mad and making my mind up right then and there, either A, I won't be back for a while, or B, I won't ever come back. I don't like what that man preached, but it was out of the Word of God. He didn't add to it. He didn't take away from it. It's verse after verse after verse of Scripture. You read it right along with him. And then if I leave with that in my crawl, because I've only got an opinion about Scripture. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's not the issue. The issue isn't whether I agree with it or not. The issue is, is that verse of Scripture correct? If I believe the Word of, of God is the, just the infallible Word of God, then yes, it's correct. Every verse in it is correct. If my thing is a re, an opinion about it, not a revelation, then when he gets mad, guess where I'm going to do I'm going to leave mad. If I don't like what he preached and it don't jive with my opinion about it, I'm going to leave and I'm going to ponder and think, do I want to ever go back there again and get offended? Now, a revelation about that very same scripture won't allow me to leave mad. That revelation, and it may not, it may not even be a revelation about that scripture. Him preaching it may be the first time I've ever heard it. But if I've got a revelation about submission... If I've got a revelation about repentance, if I've got a revelation about humility, those any or all of those revelations won't let me leave the house of God mad. That revelation, any one of them is going to say to me, you better get your happy hide down to that altar right now because you've got some stuff in your attitude that's not right and you're going to be lost. If you leave here and die before you can get back and repent, you're going to be lost. That's the difference between an opinion and a revelation about Scripture. You can have an opinion about submission. Well, you know, I think submission's okay as long as, well, if that's my position on it, 
uh, I've just demonstrated to myself, I don't have a revelation. I got an opinion. And we have, we have a church world full of opinions about Scripture. Search the Scriptures, it says. For in them you think you found eternal life. They are they which testify of me. You want to know him? Get in the word. Why is the word important? Well, David summed it up this way. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you, O God. Now, in light of the fact that I don't know when he's coming, I can't tell you when all of these things are going to start happening and coming to pass. But I can tell you right here, right now, on tonight, they're going to start taking place. I've said this in your hearing before. I feel compelled to say it again tonight. Whatever it is I believe, Brother Hastings, I better believe it. When I was a kid growing up in the church, and some of y'all have been in the church long enough, you remember these days. It didn't matter what Pentecostal church you went to, what apostolic church it was, they preached the same message about the rapture. They preached the same message about heaven. They all preached the same message about hell. They preached the same message about separation from the world. It didn't matter where you went. It didn't matter who the guy was preaching. Everybody was on basically the exact same page preaching the exact same message. Now, if you think that what, if we think that what Jesus did at Babel went unnoticed by the enemy, we would be wrong. The scripture says that when they started building all that stuff at Babel, the Lord looked down on what they were doing and he said, uh, they're, they're going to achieve their goal. Now, to what height that was going to be, I don't know. Uh, what exactly that goal included altogether, I'm not 100% sure. But whatever their goal was, the Lord wasn't pleased with it. And so he said, I've got to confuse what they're doing. Well, how do you confuse what somebody's doing? How do you get 100,000 different people that are working together in one mind and one accord to start doing different things from one day to the next? Change what they're talking about. Change how they're talking about it. So he said, you know what? I'm not going to stop them from talking about the mission. I'm not going to stop them from talking about the vision. I'm not going to stop them from talking about the tower. But I am going to change how they're talking about it. And I'm going to make it so that one can't understand another one. And in a minute, they won't be doing what they're doing anymore. And I will have stopped the progress of these people. And when their progress is stopped, the futility of it will settle in and they'll disperse and go all over the world. And that's exactly what they did. Well, do you think the enemy didn't notice how well that plan worked and how effective that plan worked? Of course he did. And it's my opinion that he had a conversation with himself and said, you know what, I'm going to tuck that away in my little pocket because there's going to come a day I'm going to need to mess with the house he's trying to build. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to change the message? No. I'm not going to change the doctrine. I'm not going to try to change the new birth. I'm not going to try to change the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not going to try to change the fivefold ministry. I'm not even really going to change the teachings on holiness and separation, but I am going to change how everybody's talking about it. 
And I'm going to get one group talking about it from one position and another group talking about it from another position. And this group back here, they're going to come at it from a whole different set of opinions and perspectives. And they'll all still be talking about the same subjects, but they won't be speaking the same language about it and they won't be saying the same thing about it. And eventually they won't have a unified conviction and a revelation that allows them to work as one body in one mind and one accord. And I'll do that to them like he did it at Babel and I'll mess up the house he's trying to build. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but that's exactly what's going on in the church broadly around the world. We're all still talking about a lot of the same things, but now we've got futurists talking about it from one perspective, and we've got preservationists over here talking about it from another one, and then we've got the moderate people in the middle talking about it from even a third, and there are even more diverse positions than just those three. We all similarly look and sound and do the same things, but the unity that we once had as the body of Christ is different. Now some of this stuff is preached as optional, but it used to be preached as absolute. Now a lot of the things the church is embracing, we're doing it because, well, it's a personal conviction or it's an opinion. No, it isn't. It never was, it's not now, and it's never going to be an opinion. But if you think that the enemy has not been working really hard to subliminally get us to keep talking about the same subjects but come at it from different positions. And now, well, don't say this too harshly, Brother Shelton, because you'll offend somebody. Well, don't say that too tough or you'll make somebody else mad. The Word of God, the Word of God is all I've got a right to talk to you about. And if it's in that book, we don't have a right to change the content nor the context. But the problem is we are a fickle people. Because we have found ourselves in the prophetic utterances of the last day church. We have itching ears. Whether we want to admit it or not, there are some subjects that don't scratch our ears the way we want to be scratched. There are some topics that we enjoy hearing preached about. We enjoy hearing preaching and prophesying about the, the revivals that are to come and the end time harvest and all of the things that we heard this morning. And those are vital parts of what we're doing. And it's right. But we've still got a work to do on a daily basis to be saved as individuals. And at the end of the day, the enemy is going to come not corporately against the church. The corporate attack is going to be individual attacks. And it is my personal view because of a lot of experience personally and a lot of experience that I have seen others going through. The enemy is a master at making us question what we believe. He is a master at making us really wonder, is that necessary? Is that right? I, I'll be honest with you. I'll confess it. I have walked out of pulpits having been required of the Lord to preach some pretty strong stuff. And can feel the pushback. You know, there's people, it's hard. I mean, I know a lot of times people try to hide their, their, their expressions, but a lot of times it's really difficult. And it's not hard to see who it is looking back at you out of a hundred or a thousand people that don't like what you're saying. Well, then when you get back to your hotel or you get in a vehicle and you're driving and you're alone, then there's that moment that the enemy starts working on your brain. 
Is it possible I preached that too hard? Is it possible that I preached that way too straight? Did I have the right attitude about this? Did I, did I add to this? And, and man, if you're not careful, by the time you're done with it and the enemy's done working on your brain, you almost want to turn the vehicle around and go back and issue an apology. Because this thing's powerful. It don't take the enemy about five minutes working in your head. You can love Brother Williams until the day is long. Well, he can preach something that I don't like. And before I can get out in the parking lot, the enemy will be working on your brain, working on your brain. Well, the problem is if there's no revelation anywhere that helps me be able to take that strong word and put it in my own spirit and do what I need to do with it, there's, there's no telling what wrong decision I'm going to make before I can never even get home. As nice as that portico is, if I come in here and he preaches something I don't like and I can get something in my gullet before I can get out of this building, I can walk out there and see that portico and just be so mad about that and be mad because you didn't ask my opinion. And that don't have anything to do with what the real issue is. But if, if I don't have some kind of a revelation to get me past my offenses... I'll leave out of here and get mad at the portico and that'll be the excuse I've got and, and I'll never come back. Brother Shelton, that don't happen. Oh, yeah, my grandfather and three other men were deacons in the church. My grandfather was a powerfully anointed teacher. And you remember back when they used to, and I know some places still have them, but used to churches, well, a lot of them were built on blocks. And they'd put them old gas floor furnaces in them. And this church had one floor furnace. And so um, they also had a need for some additional lighting. <clears throat> well, uh, some of the deacons uh, went at a, at a board meeting, and they, they were talking with pastor about it. And they said, look, uh, we, we got some, some folks in here that are freezing to death in the winter. It's just cold as it can be. And this church is off the ground, and that air is blowing under it. The floor is, well, y'all know what it's like when you're sitting on a floor that's cold. I don't care if your head's sweating. Your feet will freeze right off of you. And so these trustees, deacons, they were, they were trying to tell the pastor, we need more heat in this building. Well, he had been noticing that people were squinting, trying to see their Bibles while he was preaching. Well, he's telling them, brethren, I understand your point. Uh, but it's only cold like that four or five months out of the year. It's dark in here all the time, which wasn't actually accurate because in the summertime it was daylight. Well, he wanted lights. They wanted heat. And for all the teaching that my grandfather had done and all the word he knew, apparently there were some revelations he never had gotten. And so the pastor listened to what they had to say, and he said, well, I appreciate your input, brethren, but I'm, my decision is we're going, I'm going to buy lights. Well, the board didn't need to vote on it. They just, you know, they were talking about it. And he went and bought lights. So my grandfather and these two other men got mad, and they quit going to church that day. That was it. Over. Finished. Kaput. One of those men didn't take him very long, and he, he came to his senses, and he went back and repented and got things right. Another one of those men never really got right with God again, and he took his own life 
35 years later. My grandfather never really acknowledged out loud that he was wrong and shouldn't have done what he did. Um, he never, and I sat with him the morning he died. And he had been reduced by diabetes to a place that all he could say was, oh me, oh me, oh me, oh me. And as he began to die, and you could tell he was going, and I looked at him and I said, Granddaddy, are you thirsty? And he nodded, and tears started welling up in his eyes. And I said, please tell me, as I put the water to his mouth and he sucked a drink up, I said, please tell me. My aunt was running to the nurse's station. Please, Granddaddy, tell me that somewhere in this fog you've been in, somewhere you repented. And all he had the chance to do before he took that last breath was just, I thought it looked to me like a nod and a tear rolled out of his eye and he was gone. All it took was getting offended over a floor furnace. And I, he's in the hands of a just God's all I can tell you. Brother Shelton, why are you telling us this? Because we, we no longer have the luxury of time to play around with our eternity. We, we don't have, I'll tell you what I believe personally as far as the end time is concerned. I have a feeling in my spirit that if you're 50 and under, you're probably going to be alive to see the rapture. I feel an urgency in my spirit I've never felt before, ever. And it's easy to look around me and get frustrated with so much stuff. It's, the scripture says that a fortified city is more easily won than a brother who's been offended. Offense is going to be one of the most damning things that the enemy uses against the church in the last days to trip up as many of the people of God as he can. <clears throat> Jesus is letting us know in this little passage of Scripture that I'm praying for you. Okay, well, he's praying for me, not, not for this trial or that tribulation or that mountain or that valley. He's praying for me that I am fully convinced of the stuff that I'm even preaching about. I, I know there have been times that I've preached things that I knew were a fact. I knew they were right. I knew I knew it was a word from God. It was in the word. But I also realized as I was preaching it that I didn't have the full revelation of that that I was about to get. And somewhere from that point forward in the days to come, God began to give me a revelation. And sometimes it's in some dark moments and sometimes it's in uh, jubilees and, and moments of triumph. But revelation has to come because in the days that we're living in, a lot of the stuff that's going to come against the church isn't going to just be all of the, I mean, the smoke and mirror stuff, that seems to be the worst of it, but it's not. The things that we look at and we see this advertisement and that advertisement, it's on TV, it's on the internet, it's on billboards, it's in airports, it's everywhere. And we look at all of that stuff and we think, man, the evil's all around us. Those, those are not the issues that are the worst issues that you and I need to worry about. The issues of the heart are the ones that are much more important than the billboard ad and, and that commercial and whatever else is going on. Yeah, all that stuff needs to be paid attention to. But what God's praying for the church about is what we actually 
are convinced of concerning his word. Nobody is going to get to heaven and say, wow, I didn't see this coming. If you go to heaven, you, you're going to be like, thank you, Jesus. I, I worked hard to get here. I, I died out to my flesh on a daily basis. I, I, I paid a price to be here. Nobody, nobody's going to get there and look around themselves and say, man, I really didn't think I had a shot at it, to be honest with you. Glad I'm here, but boy, I didn't see this happening. Now, there are going to be a lot of people that go to hell and end up there surprised. Our opinions about the Word of God are not going to be enough. We've got to have a revelation. Brother Shelton, I thought you would be deep tonight. No, that's about as deep as it's going to get. We better get some revelations about what it is we believe. About the new birth. I believe in it. Mm, I know. But do I believe it enough to be able to explain it to someone? Do I believe the new birth enough to be able to share that with someone? Do I believe the new birth enough that I'm convinced and, and passionate about it that I can help somebody be converted at the drop of a hat? I've got to figure out what it is I believe about the gifts of the Spirit, 100%. We better know. Because if you don't believe in the gift of healing, then you might have somebody in Walmart that needs you, and you're not going to be able to help them. You, you, you might need to know about them gifts. We better figure out where we fall in on the revelation about the five-fold ministry. God, why do we, I know you know there's a, a lot of conversation going on about the five-fold ministry, but why do you think that is? Again, we're talking about the same topic, but some are talking about the five-fold ministry like there's three offices and not five. Some are talking about it like there's just one. The pastor's all we got to have, and as long as we got a pastor, he can do all those jobs. Well, then there's those that say, no, all five of the giftings are still existing in the church. So we all believe there's some, some element of the five-fold ministry, but we can't get on the same page as to what there is, how much there is, and what involvement that the five-fold ministry should have in the local church. Well, is it necessary? Yes. If you understand and get a revelation about why the five-fold ministry even exists. He left to the church some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, some teachers, some evangelists. And he gave each one of them a different set of responsibilities to the body of Christ he did not put all of that in one person and say, you're going to be all five-fold ministry giftings to your church. Because he's had, he's had encounters with uh, folks that had a lot of leeway to his presence, and we saw how that ended up with Lucifer. So the Lord said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to jeopardize you with that much pride. I'm going to break this thing down and I'm going to give this one this gifting of an apostle and that one's going to be a prophet and that one's a teacher and that's an evangelist and that's a pastor because the whole body needs all of these gifts. But if I give it all to one, then that one, even if they don't see themselves that way, people may start looking at them as that's God and I'll just go to you and I won't pray. So he gives the fivefold ministry to the church. Then he does that and he explains why. 
for the edification and the perfecting of the saints. Why do we need to be edified and why do we need to be perfected? So that we can do the work and the ministry of the kingdom of God and the will of God in the reaching of the lost. The fivefold ministry was never given to the church just to make our lives better. It was given to us so that we could be fully equipped to do what God's called us to do. And that equipping includes a revelation of who he is, who I am to him, how we got to this point, and what's really living and working inside of us or should be on a daily basis. Now, the church is getting, we're, we're, we're being inundated on every side with every kind of challenge you can imagine. And the world around you is changing every single solitary day. And our methods from 1922 may have to be tweaked a little bit to work in 19, uh, 2022. We're not reaching the exact same world. Technology alone requires some things to change. At the end of the day, it's not our methodology that we lean on. It's the message of truth. And the revelation of that truth allows God to minister that truth on any level and through any method he chooses to. And he may use, we've got to be willing, and I've said this to you before, we've got to be willing for somebody to get right out of the penitentiary on Friday, be filled with the Holy Ghost on Sunday, and then uh, be out here teaching Bible studies by the next Friday. We've got to be all right with that. If all I'm here doing is based on my opinion about what church should be and what church ought to be, and how we ought to do and what we ought to do, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. We talk a lot about being apostolic, and, and I know, I feel it, and I get questions a lot of times um, by text and email and phone calls and just face-to-face -face conversations. What's the big deal about always y'all are talking about we got to be apostolic? Well, to be apostolic as opposed to just being Pentecostal, uh, you can be Pentecostal just through the experience that they had on the day of Pentecost. But to be an apostolic means to be and live and do and act and function like the apostles did. Being apostolic is not just what we do in here on church days. Apostolic is Apostolic ministry is sometimes, if not always, predicated on apostolic living. If I'm going to have a ministry that's apostolic where we're spirit-led, the gifts of the spirit are operating, supernatural things are being done, the dead are being raised to life, I've seen that three times in my ministry. Well, if we're going to see all of that stuff, there's got to be an apostolic life lived somewhere. Nobody lives an apostolic life based on opinions about what an apostolic life is. Are you all picking up what I'm putting down? If I'm going to live an apostolic life, I've got to have a revelation of what that means. I, I've, I, can't, I can't get offended every time I hear somebody say the word apostolic and think, well, I'm, I'm saved and sanctified and washed by the blood. That's enough. That's the beginning. But that experience was never intended by God to be the zenith of our relationship with him. That was always God's intention to be the ground level where you start your relationship with God at, and everything else builds off of that and on top of that, and you go forward from there. So if I'm going to live an apostolic life, 
so I can have an apostolic ministry. I've got to have a revelation about what the Word of God says an apostolic life looks like. And if I'm going to try to live an apostolic life based on opinions, it's not going to work. It is absolutely not going to work. I will not be faithful and committed. You might, but I won't. I will not be faithful and committed to the pursuit of God in having an apostolic ministry if I don't figure out what an apostolic life looks like too first before I get that other stuff. An apostolic life includes the fruit of the Spirit. We want to jump up and run right after them gifts, but you're not going to have gifts without fruit. And you're not going to have fruit trying to be competitive with everybody in the kingdom of God. How does You want to know what an apostolic life looks like? We'll read the book of Philippians. Read the whole book tonight before you go to bed. We'll be out in time. Read the whole book. It's only like 104 verses. Paul makes statements in that book like, consider everyone as being better than yourself. (laughs) How can I do that and then be in competition with you at the same time? The scripture says, prefer your brother. How can I do that and try to one-up him at the same time? I can't have an apostolic ministry if the results I'm trying to get are based on and all about me benefiting myself and my reputation and getting more engagements and more opportunities to go preach. If the only reason a guy's operating in the gifts and being used in the gifts of the Spirit or trying to be is to build a reputation, that's not what we're looking for. If it's all about ministry, you're going to fall somewhere. Before there's ministry, there's got to be morals and values and integrity and character. But those things can't be had just based on opinion. My dad was one of the most character-driven people I've ever known. But it was because of some convictions that he had and some revelations that he had gotten along the way. And my dad's moral compass was not negotiable, and it was not something that somebody was going to compromise him on. I've watched my mother be just as unwavering as the North Star when it came to the kingdom, not because she thought she was all that, but because she had found some things in Scripture. And I've watched my mother be offended by people. I've watched people mistreat my mom. And I've watched them do things to when we were children. There there were some situations. We were in a small church. There wasn't very many young people. And for some reason, there were some people that had it in for us in leadership. And, And man, and I watched my mother keep us from getting a bad spirit. It... You, you, they, they kicked my brother off the drums because somebody knew it'd come along. And my brother, when there was nobody, my brother was the one playing drums. And somebody else had come to church for a while and had a kid in the family that could play the drums, tappity-tap, and they'd kick Stephen off of it. And Stephen would cry at home and just be kind of distraught. And I watched my mother never one time waver. She never said a negative word about them. She never let us talk ugly about people. We never got to vent too much our feelings about it. Because she had a revelation of what it was we were supposed to look like and act like and the way we were supposed to behave. And mom never let us do anything outside of that revelation. And there came a day, Brother Walker, that I got that same revelation and my brother got it and my sister got it. Revelations are what keep us. Opinions are fleeting. Opinions fail us. Opinions change. I believe holiness 
as much as anybody in this room, if not more than a lot of people. I, I you, you, you are not, you, you, you're not going to talk me out of it either. And there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. Huh? Well, what in the wide world? I thought I was about to get high karate or something. Now I'm all juiced up here. I don't know whether I'm in trouble or what. Yeah. There's a there's a conversation that's going on in the church nowadays, and, and it is we need to listen to other people's views on some things. Don't be so one-track-minded. I've had them tell me that, Brother Burke. You're too one-track-minded. You need to realize that there are other people that have other views on this. Well, I'm, I'm not an apologist, and I'm not apologizing for anything about the Word of God, period. And I got a revelation about the Word. I don't want to hear your opinion about it. And if you've got a revelation about it, you shouldn't want to hear my opinion about it. And there are no two sides to revelation. There are no two sides to truth. It's either right or it's wrong. And if it's right and you see what's right and you've got a revelation about that, quit opening yourself up to other people's views and opinions about a verse of Scripture or a chapter or entire book or the whole Word of God and letting them explain to you why maybe your revelation's a little off kilter. No. If you've got a revelation about the Word of God and you know God gave that to you, and if you've had to go and get it confirmed and the man of God says, yes, that's right, then don't ever listen to anybody else's opinion about your revelation. End of story, period. That's what Paul said when he began to talk in the second uh, chapter of uh, Galatians, which is an amazing chapter. And if you could read it in the Passion Translation, it really brings it down into modern English. But Paul makes a statement about the elders of the church. He said, I went, I went to the elders of the church because I had been preaching the message of truth to the Gentiles. And I went to the elders of the church because they've been preaching this message a whole lot longer than I have to the Jews. And I wanted to make sure that what I was preaching lined up with what they were preaching. So he went and submitted his doctrine and submitted his revelation to the elders. They affirmed it. Yes, this is right. This is what God wants you preach, and this is what we preach. But then Paul explains why he had done that. He said there are those who have brought some church people to, pers- to, to meetings, church meetings, and they have come to spy us out. Read it. He said they've come to spy us out and find out about these freedoms that we have in ministry, that we're, we're preaching not just within the bondage of the law, but we're preaching the grace and the love of God too. And so, and then in the Passion Translation it says, they have come among us to spy out our liberties in ministry and with the intention of bringing us back under religious bondage. Then he says, but don't worry about it. I didn't listen to none of them. When I found out my message that I was preaching was right and the elders affirmed that and then they bring in these really influential church people who are trying to get me to believe something that's not right, he said, don't y'all worry about it. 
I didn't believe one word of it. In fact, he goes on to say, even the most influential brother among them had nothing to add to my ministry. Now, in today's world, if a guy got up at a district meeting or some big conference or some little conference or in a church service and said, hey, I went and heard so-and-so preach and I just want y'all to know that dude don't have anything to tell me. Well, our initial response to that might be, boy, you're a little arrogant. You're, you're a little full of pride. And I understand that. But Paul, Paul was not one of the, the original 12. He was kind of a Johnny-come-lately. And Paul was the one that had been killing all the saints up to this point. So it doesn't really fly with what our concept of hierarchical structure in the church should be. But Paul had a revelation that was not intimidated by other people's influence and reputations. Paul even makes a statement about it. He said God himself was not impressed with their reputations among men. And I'm afraid that we've allowed our convictions to be swayed by the reputations of some among men. We hear what they say, we hear what they preach, and we know in our spirit this don't really, man, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, something don't, but I mean, that guy's an awesome preacher. Don't throw him away, but don't abandon your convictions either. Don't abandon the revelation that God's given you. Don't listen to what I'm saying and go home and say, well, I believe every word of that and never get your Bible out and check it. Read the second chapter of Galatians. Don't accept just everything I say without backing it up with the word. And if you find something I said that can't be substantiated by the word, tell him and he'll call my bishop and or me and we'll get it all figured out and I'll back off of it. But your, your revelations are more important than my preaching. If what I'm preaching don't line up with the word, you better be careful about just receiving it hook, line, and sinker. And that's what Paul said. This guy was, he was a reputable guy. But his, there was some stuff that wasn't right with what he was doing. And I didn't, that fella don't have nothing to say to me. That's what, that's what Paul told him. He has nothing to add to my ministry. Well, then you get down to around verse 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Paul then says, Peter came to Antioch. <laughs> and when little Pete got there, I confronted him to his face in front of everyone. This is the junior man. Now, he'd been in the kingdom a while, but Peter's one of the 12. This is Peter that had the vision of the cloth let down from heaven, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. This is Peter that the angel had to kick him in the jail and wake him up to get him out. It's just Peter that was going to die the next day and the Lord delivered him. It's just Peter, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. Peter that led the upper room experience, not a novice. Paul says he rebuked that guy to his face in front of God and everybody. You let Junior come do that right now. We wouldn't, we wouldn't appreciate that too much. 
Well, that was kind of harsh, Brother Shelton. Well, it must have worked because the scripture goes on to indicate that Paul came back sometime later and Peter was still in the ministry. You know what it was about Peter that was so amazing? He could take a rebuke. Jesus rebuked him. Oh, called him a devil. I'm going to turn you over to Satan so your soul can be saved. You become a hindrance to me. He stayed right with him. All the jump Peter did, he could take a rebuke because he had a revelation. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you. Peter's revelation was so powerful, he could take a rebuke from the junior man and not get offended about it and quit the church in front of everybody. And I'm going to just tell you, my bishop has rebuked me publicly at least three times that I can think of in front of hundreds of people with a microphone in my hand. And it wasn't easy to take. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for me, but I'm telling you, it was not easy. And, and two of the times was on live stream. I, you talking about a fantastic shellacking. It was. Both of them. And I got to tell you, if I hadn't gotten some revelations along the way, I would have been humiliated enough to have never walked back in another church where he was. <laughs> but revelation helped me take correction. And even more revelation came. Paul says, you know what, Peter, you're, you're doing stuff that's become a stumbling block to the people. You're, you're preaching one doctrine and living another. And it's not okay anymore. And I'm going to go to my seat with this, but I am telling you that we are entering a season in the church where while there may not be face-to-face -face confrontations like that one was, the Lord is requiring men and women of God to preach an unflinching message just like we used to that is going to be that face-to-face -face confrontation. And people who are preaching watered-down junk, opinion-laden messes are going to be confronted by truth. The church has never been divided. But the enemy has never stopped trying to integrate itself into the ranks of the church, ever. He has never taken a day off trying to infiltrate the church with sin and compromise. I know in the world we live in and the climate of the world around us nowadays to talk about some things is, is not easy because we're taught to be so aware of other people's feelings, and I get all of that, all right? I, I really do. But truth does not do that. Now, the Scripture says that even judgment should be administered with love, and you can take the truth and turn it into a weapon of mass destruction and destroy everybody that hears it. And I think the call of God to the church is for us to become velvet-covered bricks, solid, firm, not moving, 
but not abusive and abrasive to the touch either. You cannot do, we cannot do the work of the kingdom without loving people. It's just not, <clears throat> there's just no way to do it. <clears throat> but I have found this out after 54 years of living and having the Holy Ghost since I was nine. If you're in the church because you just want to be a part of something, man, it's, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. You, you can go work at Walmart and never get your feelings hurt. But you come to church more than about three times and you are a candidate for somebody to say or do something that might hurt your feelings. Why is that if the church was really all? Hey, look, the church is made up of people. So let's bust that little bubble right there. Just because we've all been filled with the Holy Ghost, we saved and sanctified, does not mean that we don't have personalities and get on each other's nerves. Y'all know goodness well I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Nobody wants to admit it. But if we can get on the same page with Revelation, you and I don't have to have the same opinions about stuff. Our revelation about the mighty God will bind us together. Our revelation about the new birth will link us together. Our revelation about the identity of the church will link us together in ways that nothing else can. The enemy is going to, where is that sister to play that piano melodiously? Is she up there behind me? Son, she's powerful. Sister, just get right after it there and give the people some false sense of hope. <laughs> Not really, I am fixing to land the plane because i got to drive back to Arkansas. But all day today, it's been in my spirit. And for weeks now, I, I this stuff has just been in my spirit, and I can't get away from it. And I'm not trying to. But we better figure out what it is we believe. I'm not saying you don't know. I think I know what I believe. And before, about two weeks ago, I would have just stepped right up and said, oh, yeah, I know. But about two weeks ago, the Lord spoke to me and he said, do yourself a favor and get back in my word and shore it up. Shore those convictions up. Shore up those revelations. Because whether we realize it or not, being in the world, dealing with people, having friends, whatever, our revelations can get pulled on and tugged on and torn and shredded sometimes. I got family members that are not right with God. You know what? I mean, man, I got some that's in trouble with God. They're just in trouble. And I, I will admit to you, it'd be easier some days to look at the stuff they're in and the things they're going through and not have some of the revelations I've got. You know what I'm talking about? It'd be easier some days, Brother Burke, to look at it and say, you know what, they deserve a pass. Then when you get in the Word, there is none. 
I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if they're going to get there, they're going to have to make some changes. And it's hard sometimes to look people you love right in the face and tell them, I love you. I do. I love your guts. But you're wrong. And while I'm not going to beat you in the face with it, I am telling you, you don't get a pass. The Word of God's still true. And if you're going to go to the Father, if you're, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to walk away from this life you're living. I think sometimes the reason we're not more evangelistic with the new birth and apostolic living is because perhaps, perhaps, maybe we don't have the revelation about it ourselves that we need. So I took what the Lord said personally. And I'm, I'm working on that very thing. I'm, I'm going back, and I need to shore it up. I, I need to reiterate through the word why I believe what I believe. Because I got a lot of people I love that, man, they got opinions about things I got revelations about. And I don't want my love for them and my friendship with them to be what causes me to lay a revelation down and pick up an opinion because it'll cost me my soul. Do things going on around me irritate me? Yes. But I got a revelation and that revelation is Scott Shelton's got to be saved. I can't make you go to heaven and I'm not going to let you make me go to hell. <laughs> not going to do it. Yeah, stuff gets on my nerves. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. There's a lot of stuff that I look at and I know straight up it's just wrong. Have you ever been mistreated by people and you knew good and well they were in the wrong when they said it and did it? <sighs> Y'all all sanctified, but I have. But I got a revelation about that too. I've offended people too. And to whom much is given, much is required. Only the Lord knows how much mercy he's granted me in light of my flesh. So how do I not extend that same mercy? Be angry and sin not. You got a right to be frustrated. But you don't have a right to let it make you be lost. You just remember, whatever day this is, it's December the 4th. You remember in eternity, if you go to hell, that on this night I told you on his behalf to make sure what you believe. No more just listening to other people. Get, get a Bible. Get an iPad with a Bible, whatever. Phone. Get a paper Bible out. Get a Strong's Greek and Hebrew concordance and dictionary and start looking it up. Study it for yourself. Because when this whole deal is done, if I'm lost, it won't be your fault. If I'm lost, 
It'll be because of me. Stand with me. I don't want to be lost. There was a while in my life, Brother Williams, I lived with some trepidation. Because I was afraid that despite my best efforts, Brother Elledge, I was going to be lost somehow or another. I, I was just going to, and I've thought about Job. He offered those sacrifices on a daily basis in the event just in case his kids had displeased God. And I lived with some tremendous fear that no matter what I did, I, I may still be lost. I'd go to the altar. Man, if they, if, if they just turned the lights on at the church and I was driving by, I'd pull in and go to the altar. Because I didn't want to go to hell. I, I, was, I was afraid. And I remember us praying prayers like, Lord, if I've done anything in any way that has displeased you, please forgive me of it. If there's something that I'm not aware of, things that I may have done, Lord, bring it to my... One day I got a revelation and the Lord spoke to me. He said, I want you to be saved worse than you want to be. Do you think that there would be something that you have done that would grieve me that I wouldn't draw to your attention? Do you think that I would let something lay dormant that would cause you to be lost after I paid the price of Calvary and not tell you it was there? I can't tell you the peace that I got when I realized God would go the extra mile to make sure that I had every opportunity to get everything between me and him clear. It's a revelation. It's peace. We got people in the church that have no peace because they don't have any true revelation of, of scriptures like perfect love casteth out all fear. What perfect love? His for us. When you realize how much God loves you, it doesn't matter anymore what, what the world may try to do to you. It don't matter what lie the devil's going to tell you. When you know how much God loves you, and you're about to turn a corner as a church. He said it this morning, you're on a launch pad. God may call you to do things that no other church around here is doing. He may call you to go into a prayer revival that lasts six months and nobody else is having one. But get a revelation about who you are as a church, not as just an individual, but as a church. And whatever it is the Lord leads you to do as a church, do it unequivocally. Don't, don't let anything get in your spirit or mind and wonder what in the world. Get a revelation about who you are as a church. Strengthen up what you believe with the Word of God. Make sure you know what you believe. You young people, don't take somebody's word for it. Don't, for God's sake, don't just listen to all the preachers you can on YouTube and think, okay, well, that, no. No. No, absolutely not. Get the Word of God out. You hear somebody preaching something, look it up. Read it. See it in there for yourself. You're no more powerful than the revelations you've got. You want to be powerful, get in the Word. Get a revelation about that Word. Let God give it to you. Because things are changing. The world's changed. The landscape of the church is changing. And I'll tell you this, you come, whoever's going to get this mic, 
As a church, you've been through a lot of things the last two or three years. Brother and Sister Williams have been attacked physically on a brutal level. Heart surgery, I have what, four bypasses or five? Four? Hip surgery recently. <clears throat> Sister Williams went through a season of physical attack and sickness that was brutal. Come down here, Sister Williams. Stand by your husband if you would. Or sit by him if you want to. God made no mistakes when he brought this man and this woman to this city and to this church. God is about to take this church into a new season. Hello? We got a lot of people out sick tonight. Do you realize if everybody that's sick and displaced tonight with various things going on in the holidays, if everybody was here, are you aware of just how close you are to not having really enough room? It wouldn't take but just a hiccup of harvest and you'd be in trouble as far as room. Some things are going to change. And there's going to be some gaps that God's going to fill in that he's left empty to test commitment and the pursuit of the kingdom. And you've, you've continued to pursue him. You haven't told him no, so he's not going to tell you no. Everything that God's told you about this church and its future, its ministry, its destiny, everything it's going to do, all of the regional words that God's given you about daughter works that are going to be started in this region out of this church, it's going to come to pass. And you're going to be healthy enough to see it and be a part of it. <clears throat> going to raise grandkids, you're going to be fine. And I really do believe that this season of physical attacks is coming to a close. I really do. And you have passed whatever test it was, both of you. You've remained faithful. You've kept a right spirit and a right attitude. Y'all don't know it, but Sister Williams has been here for two services today, and she's sick. And I believe the very fact that you're here, we don't even have to pray for you. God's responded to your obedience to be in the house of God and I believe the miraculous power of God's working in your body right this moment. I believe it's been working since you walked in this morning. Now the enemy may say, yeah, but I feel you feel bad right now. You know what? The truth and the facts are two different things. The facts are you may feel bad. The truth is God's doing a miraculous work in your body right now. That's the truth. Come get this oil, Brother Williams. Why don't you go anoint both your parents right on their head? Some of you stretch a hand this way, and some of you elders come down here real quickly. <clears throat> some of you elders come down here and help them pray. We're going to pray virtue over them, strengthen their bodies right now in Jesus' name. Stretch your hand down here. Come on. Lord, they have obeyed you. They have said yes to you. And you have led them through some 
low places and tough places and challenging places, and they have remained faithful. They have been an example to this body of believers. We thank you for them. We give you such high thanks for them. You brought them here. You equipped them to do the things they've done. Now we're entering a new season in this church, and this church is fully prepared for it. Thank you for this leadership. We trust them. We honor them. We lift them up in Jesus' name. That's it. Come on, pray with them. Bless them. Pray a blessing over them right now. Lord, we release a blessing over their minds. We bless their health. We bless their physical bodies, their spirits, their emotions, their family. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for this church. And I'm not their pastor. I'm not their bishop. But I am their friend. And I love them. These are some of the greatest people you ever put on the planet. And I thank you for each and every one of them in this room tonight. Those that were not able to be here, thank you for all of them. Lord, for the saints that have been here for decades and have stayed the test, stayed the course, thank you for them. Thank you for their shining example of what an apostolic life of commitment really looks like. Lord, for these young adults and these young couples and these young people, I thank you for them. They, they could have chosen not to serve you, but they've embarked on a pursuit of you, and you left them an example of what that looks like. Thank you for the leadership of this church. Thank you for the hunger and the leadership of this church. Thank you for Bishop and Sister Williams and Brother Dustin Williams and his wife, their families. We thank you for them, all the pastoral staff, the musicians, <clears throat> the singers, the Sunday school workers and leaders all throughout this body. Lord, they have continued through COVID, they continued. Some of them have continued even recently through loss of loved ones. But Lord, tonight they're here, they're still in the kingdom. And I'm reminding you of them. I know you know they're here, but I just want to be on record as reminding you of them. They have continued to say yes to you and pursue you and serve you and be faithful to your kingdom. Remember them now. Let angels come, minister to them, minister to their families, and prepare them with rest and restoration and renewing for the next season of this church, the revival that's going to break out, the harvesting of souls that will take place, the launching of new works that will take place, the igniting of ministries that will take place. We thank you for every bit of it in Jesus' name. Would you lift your hands one more time and thank the Lord for being aware of where you are. And pray the Lord help you to be sure of what it is that you believe. Come on, I mean, take a couple of minutes here and just ask the Lord to lead you and guide you in a pursuit of truth to shore up your convictions and your revelations about the Word and the kingdom of God and His expectations of you.